This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies have new deadlines now to finish and submit reentry plans for their employees and contractors. The instructions come from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, and they call on agencies to detail a phased schedule for bringing employees back into the office. They also describe what post-reentry personnel and workforce policies will look like. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now with what this all might mean for you. And Nicola, let's begin with when can federal employees expect that call, asking them to return to the office? So I don't think it's going to happen anytime before July 19th. And I say that because that is the deadline that the Biden administration has given agencies to submit these final plans. And quite frankly, this is the first time I've heard that uh, the Biden administration is collecting these re-entry plans, as they call them. In fact, draft plans are due to OMB, the Office of Personnel Management and the General Services Administration by June 18th. And so what will happen is OMB, GSA and OPM will give feedback on those plans send them back to the agencies, the agencies will submit, you know, finalized versions. And then at that point, agencies can then begin, if they have to, satisfy uh, labor management obligations. So you may have to bargain over some of these plans. You may not, depending on where you are and maybe what agreements you have with your union. And then agencies have to give their employees enough time to come back to the office. So if there is a specific date, they have to give them, you know, enough notice essentially before asking them to come back. So in my mind, you know, July 19th is the deadline when these plans are due, but I don't even see a scenario where federal employees are being asked to come back to their offices, at least on an en masse basis, maybe before the end of the summer or the beginning of September or something like that. I guess for a lot of employees, they would like it to be time for when the kids go back to school. That might be what they're aiming for. So the submission of the plans by June 18th, then, is just the beginning of the process of letting people start to think about when they might come back, basically. That's the way I see it, at least based on an email that went out to agencies just the other day on kind of what this is supposed to look like. And I think we should say, Tom, that the plans themselves, it seems like, are going to incorporate a couple of different things. So one, a phased schedule for bringing more people back into the offices. But then also, it seems as if they're being asked to describe kind of what things are going to look like at the agency as far as how many people are allowed to telework when, how often, or do they even have to come back into the office at all? We know some agencies are considering, you know, kind of hybrid arrangements where some employees are teleworking for a period of time, others are maybe in the office and vice versa. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. So is it up to the agencies then after they submit the plans to implement them in the best way they see fit at their own discretion? That's the way I understand it. But the Biden administration is essentially warning agencies, look, you know, all this could change. We're on a good trajectory with the pandemic, at least right now. But things could change if, you know, the pandemic kind of evolves or, you know, if something disastrous happens. But that, I think, is kind of the one caveat that I see, at least in this message that went out to agencies the other day. But I mean, each agency is different and each agency is going to argue that they need their own kind of specific plan to operate, at least post-pandemic here. And it's probably fair to say the administration is getting countervailing pressures from the different sides of the aisle in Congress but it seems to be just charting its own course here. They definitely are. You know, I think we're hearing from some House Republicans who say that, you know, federal employees probably should have been back into the office yesterday or sooner. 
Um, and then at the same time, you know, there are Democrats like Virginia Democrat Jerry Connolly, who are writing to the Office of Personnel Management saying, OK, let's be really careful with how we bring federal employees back into the offices. So there's there's that at the same time. There are certainly some agencies that could probably benefit from having more employees back into the offices, Social Security being one of them, and possibly some agencies like the National Archives and Records Administration, which has a big backlog of records requests. That brings up the question of telework policy, which has been totally loose now for nearly a year and a half. What are agencies thinking about with respect to telework? I imagine that varies depending on the agency also. It does. But at the same time, I think there's a common thread or a common message with some of these agencies. And we've talked about some of those messages that we're hearing, Tom, from places like the Agriculture Department, National Science Foundation as well. But just the other day, the Social Security Administration emailed its employees with kind of an update. It didn't take too much, but it certainly, I think, is telling given the agency's history, we'll say. SSA Commissioner Andrew Saul said that he's asked the deputy commissioners to reevaluate telework opportunities and consider what their components have learned over the last year, which makes sense. And, you know, he says that the pandemic has given SSA a chance to build a new normal that improves public service. He acknowledged that not all workloads are portable, especially those that might interact with, you know, homeless or other vulnerable populations. But he says, generally, we expect to increase telework opportunities from our pre-pandemic levels. He also mentions, you know, public service must be the key driver, but we're interested in things like employee retention, recruitment, morale, space savings continuity of government operations and the environment. And then he goes on to say, I appreciate that telework is important to you and for your ability to plan in your personal lives. So I wanted to let wanted to take a moment to let you know we're working on it. And I think that message is especially interesting considering how SSA has handled telework right before the pandemic. I mean, they cut back on those opportunities for many employees just a couple of weeks before all of this really started. Yes, Andrew Saul does have a humane side, I guess, is what they're saying probably about him now. And of course, then you've got agencies like VA, where there's this gigantic administrative piece in VBA and in the administrative and procurement offices of Veterans Health Administration. But at the same time, most of their clinical people have been in the hospital hospitals and and health centers the whole time. Those are really hybrid situations. Do we know anything about VA? Yeah, I got a chance to ask VA Secretary Dennis McDonough that question, how he was thinking about this, knowing that such a huge portion of his workforce at the Veterans Health Administration has been on site pretty much the entire time during the pandemic. And he said that a survey went out to employees. He said about 30,000 have responded so far, and he expects to get a, a couple more thousand responses and essentially said, I want to learn from that feedback. I want to hear what people at VBA, the Veterans Benefits Administration, and those who have been teleworking during this time, what they've learned. And he says that he wants to apply those lessons going forward to maximize their productivity, job satisfaction, and opportunities for growth. He says that's how we'll do that. And then if that means additional telework options, he says he's extraordinarily comfortable with that. So I think we will see more telework at places like VA, of course, knowing that many of those employees really can't do that at all. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.